Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Mark chapter 14, verses 43 through 52, with Pastor John King. Uh, last week, we saw Jesus during his hour of agony and oppression. You know, we saw him in the Garden of Gethsemane, basically sweating drops of blood as he prayed to the Father. We're not used to seeing Jesus that way, but he is truly a man of sorrows. He would sweat drops of blood as he agonized over the plan, God's plan, the Father's plan, the cup of God's wrath that would needed to be placed upon him in order to secure our salvation. And that's, that's a tough one. That's a, you know, that was difficult for our Lord and Savior Jesus. That's a tough one for us to get our arms around. Because we're the recipients of grace, and Jesus was the recipient of God's wrath. And because he was, we will not be. And so it's very important for us to be reminded of that. Now today, all four gospel record the events of Jesus' betrayal and arrest. We're going to talk about today in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's now resolved the issue of there not being another way to accomplish God's plan of redemption for mankind. He saw that. We saw him wrestling with that. No, there would not be another cup that didn't require Jesus to be forsaken by the Father for a period of time on the cross taking the weight of all man's sins upon his shoulders. Everything was funneled down right onto the Lord's shoulders. He who knew no sin for all of his eternal existence would have to become sin so that his people did not have to. His greatest temptation had been overcome. He wrestled with that and now he over, he's overcome that temptation. And now, before he's led away from the Garden of Gethsemane to be bound and soon to be mocked, he will soon be tortured and crucified within a matter of hours. He's going to suffer a treacherous betrayal by Judas and the wholesale desertion by all of his disciples. You remember the ones that said, oh, we're with you, Lord, we're with you to the end. Especially Peter, he was very vocal about that. Let's read about our, what we're going to study today in verse 43 of Mark 14. It says, And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come, immediately he went to him, and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Then they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus answered and said to him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled." Then they all forsook him and fled. And now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young man laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled them naked. Heavenly Father, we ask once again, as we sit before you, Lord, as we stand before you, let us be humble before your word. Let us be under the word of God. Let us be submitted to you, Lord God. Teach us what you need to teach us today. Show us the principles 
that apply to our lives today. But most of all, make it so that it works for us, Lord. Not for you, not, or not for us to, per se, but for your glory and for your goodness, Lord. That brings glory to you. Not just knowledge in our heads, but Lord, that our hearts would be transformed once again. As we head out to that crazy world, a crazy week for sure may be in store for each of us. We see what's going on out there, not just with the weather, but with all the spiritual battles that await us, Lord. And we need to be strengthened by you. As Peter said, where else would we go? Where else could we go, Lord, if we didn't have you? So go before us today. Go before your word. We pray this all in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. My betrayer is at hand. Notice how rapidly this story now starts to move. It says, immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with the swords and clubs. Judas, one of the twelve, Mark makes a point to highlight the closeness of the one who betrayed the Lord. One writer put it this way. He said, Judas's privilege was unparalleled, making the tragedy of his life also unparalleled. For several years, he had been exposed daily to the miracles and teaching of Christ, but turned his back on all of it, instead choosing to sell out the Son of God for money. Chuck Swindoll writes, It's a sad fact that loyalty is extremely rare. Unfailing faithfulness is exceedingly difficult to find. Because that is true, it's the number one quality I seek when hiring someone. I can teach knowledge and I can train skills. Give me a teachable man or woman with loyal character and my organization will take wings and fly. But I can't make a loyal employee out of an untrustworthy candidate. So Judas, and he came with a great multitude. Now this is not a crowd of admirers. This is not, you know, those who seek and, you know, onlookers like he's used to having come. This is a very hostile crowd. In fact, in John's gospel, gospel it says he, he received, Judas had received a detachment of troops, John 18.3. Troops is a, is a word known as uh, spira. It's a band or military cohort of about 600 men, 600 Roman soldiers, along with the temple uh, police, if you will, and some of the uh, temple officials. And they came with swords and clubs. Obviously, they, need, they mean business. And notice who they came from. Again, they came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. These were the Jewish leaders who've been plotting Jesus' death all along. This group had the backing of all the wealthy Jewish landowners and the ruling class. They represented the 71-member Jewish council known as the Sanhedrin. Why, why were they after him? Again, they feared his popularity with the people. They were offended by his words and his public defiance of their religious system. And now we see in verse 44, now his betrayer had given them a signal. Again, Mark is just kind of playing back what was going on, all the plans that Judas had made. And he said, 
You know, he's going to give them a signal. Why would he need to give them a signal? Well, because it was dark. It was probably about 3 o'clock in the morning. And they needed a clear signal because there could be no mistakes in the eyes of Judas. Jesus wasn't one to stand out in a crowd. He didn't have a special Hawaiian shirt like some of us do. It's okay. I like them. Somebody asked me what this plant was. Anyway, uh, I, I don't know what it is. Um, but Jesus wasn't one to stand out in a crowd. And so he had to be pointed out. He had to be, he had to be, it had to be a clear pointing out. And so he says, whoever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. Whoever I kiss. You know, rabbis were customarily greeted by their disciples with a kiss. We don't see that in our culture, uh, thankfully, but it is part of uh, many cultures around the world. Many cultures around the world. <clears throat> but notice that he says, and lead him away safely. Securely, in other words. It's as though Judas has fully convinced himself that he was doing the right thing. And sometimes, you know, when we see this, we know, um, you know, maybe it's time to pause. If, if you're heading in a direction in your life that's wrong, but you've fully convinced yourself that it's right, you know, maybe this word is for you today. Judas had fully convinced himself. Remember, Jesus treated him as a honored guest. And up to the last moment of his betrayal, Jesus would you know, give him the opportunity to repent. You know, they say that most divorces happen when one or the other or both spouses are convinced that this is the right thing to do. When indeed it may not be the right thing to do. But it says here in verse 45, As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Oh, Rabbi, Rabbi, and he kissed him with straight-faced treachery. Judas gave Jesus the kiss of death. The word in the Greek for this kiss is katafileo. This is to kiss fervently. It's not a simple kiss of salutation. He's really putting on an act here. He's really convinced that he's doing the right thing and he's going to go all the way with it. Luke twenty-two forty-eight. Jesus' response to this kiss of death from his betrayer. He says, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? You know, even at that moment, if Judas would repent, who knows what would have happened. I'm sure Jesus would have been hauled off but he could have received the Lord's forgiveness. John's Gospel records some very interesting details about all the things that are going on right now. In John 18, 4-7, Jesus therefore, it says, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, when this crowd came, he, he, he stood out and he says, whom are you seeking? You know, he kind of took the, he, even once he'd been identified and received it, he says, whom are you seeking? And they answered him, they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, he who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now, when he said to them, I am he, notice what happened. They drew back and they fell to the ground. So you had maybe 600 to 1,000 people who had come to take the Lord and haul him off. And then supernaturally, he says, I am he. And they all fell down. They all fell down right there. And then he asked them again, who are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. 
John continues in verses 7 and 9 of chapter 18. He said to them again, again, whom are you seeking? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Now Jesus answered. He says, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. These disciples that were with him, his faithful who were with him, who would soon scatter. Notice in verse 9, he says, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke, of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. You know, we always have to keep in mind, and the scriptures are very plain to show us, that even though these people, uh, they think that they're in charge, Judas thinks he's got this perfect plan laid out, everybody's come to take the Lord, you know, they're calling the shots, but not really, not really at all. John 6, 39 and 40, Jesus declared the will of the Father over those who would be saved through faith in Christ, eternally secure in his hands. And later in John 17, 12, Jesus reaffirmed this truth, assuring his disciples that he would protect them in the present and in the future. He lays down his life for his sheep. So God is in charge, and God knows who you are. He knows your life circumstance And he has a plan and a purpose for you presently and in the future. Back to our text in verse 46, it says, Then they laid their hands on him and took him. Now, more dialogue happens. You know, we kind of, this this is a, it's recorded in all four Gospels. More dialogue happens. In Matthew 26, 50, if you have an NIV or an NASB, I think that's, Jesus replied, he says, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward and seized Jesus and arrested him. John says that they tied him up. The point is that Jesus was not going to resist arrest. It it points to that fact. And it's important to understand that. Knowing, and especially for his disciples, knowing that he had the power. Knowing, having just seen, you know, 600 to 1,000 people fall down at the sound of his voice. The power of his authority. He exercised it there, but he wouldn't exercise that authority in resisting their arrest. In verse 47, things start to get messy. The one who stood by drew his sword. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh, this is not good. Now one of these, John will identify as Simon Peter. Wouldn't you know, Peter would be the one to draw the sword. Now he's apparently mistaken Jesus' words, because if you look back again, to another text, Luke 22, 36 and 38. They were preparing to go out, and Jesus, and they said, they said to him, but now he has no money sack, let him take it, and likewise a knapsack. Uh, a little explanation to that. Why Jesus was telling him in this text at that time, Luke 22, 36 through 38, is the first time he sent out his disciples on a, on a ministry trip, uh, they were to take nothing. They were just to go out. It was going to be a short-term missionary trip. They didn't need to take anything except the clothes on their back and a staff to walk with. But now he says, he prepares me, he says, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it, and likewise a knapsack, and he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. And so they, they managed to get these things together, and they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, okay, that's enough. So it sort of answers the question. Some people will say, well, how did Peter get a sword? But uh, the scripture explains that they had a sword because they were preparing for their longer term mission in life. 
And he took his sword and he struck the servant on the, uh, the high priest. He, stru- he struck the servant of the high priest. Now, Peter must have been trying to imitate a Roman soldier who would have raised his sword, okay, to strike on the head. That's a, that's a Japanese style. They would have their hands together. But they strike on the head. And he wasn't a swordsman. And he hits the servant of the high priest. His name is Malchus. And instead of hitting him in the head, he cuts off his ear. So obviously Peter was not skilled or trained in the accurate use of a sword. So we see here Jesus' response to this. Matthew records, first of all, Jesus' rebuke in Matthew 26, 52, and 54. It says, But Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father and he will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? Remember, Jesus had to willingly lay his life down. So Matthew records Jesus' rebuke after Peter cut off Malchus's ear. And uh, he said, you, know, you don't think I could now pray to my Father and he'll provide me with more than 12 legions of angels. But then he asked, he says, how could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen? Luke the physician records Jesus' healing. In Luke twenty-two fifty-one. 51, it says, but Jesus answered and said, permit even this. And he touched his ear and he healed him. This is the last miracle of Jesus' bodily cure in Luke 22. 251. Uh, William Barclay wrote, he said, had Jesus not healed Malchus, Peter would have been arrested as well, and there might have been four crosses at Calvary. Because Peter would have been guilty of murder. It would have been, what he did was wrong, and he would have been tried for capital murder. And then John records Jesus' resolve in John 18.10. And so Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into your sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? So here's some principles for us to consider today, folks, with Peter's reaction and all the things that were happening. You know, we, we understand fully uh, the tragedy of uh, Judas's betrayal. But then we look at the reaction uh, on the other side. And you have what's known as a you know, sort of a carnal zeal. He's wanting to do the right thing. I mean, how many times have you said, yes, Lord, we're going to get him. We want to get that person. But we need to be careful because you and I, we don't wield actual swords. We don't, we don't fight against flesh and blood. And we wield the word of God. And that word needs to be wielded skillfully and powerfully. One writer put it this way, he said, When the church takes a sword in its hand, it usually shows that it does not know how to wield it. And as often as not, has struck the wrong man. We have historical examples of that. We see the, the great crusades that took place. They were terrible loss of life in the name of Christ. We see the Inquisition, the Spanish Inquisition. We see all kinds of things happen when the church arms itself and tries to become what the government is supposed to be. You know, in Europe, that the church and the government are intertwined. But in America, a very unique situation. That was one of the things and one of the reasons why our founding fathers came to this country. 
is so that there would be a true separation of church and state. Now, we're not referring to wars between nations or personal protection of innocence. And I know a lot of you, you know, you're, you rightfully have the, the desire and the capability for personal protection for your family and your home. I'm not talking about that. But it's the word of God we fight a spiritual battle. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. If you've been converted, if you've become a Christian, you know the power of the word. You know there was nothing going to change the path that you were on not if it wasn't for the Lord. The power of the word of God can change parts and, and make people turn around in amazing ways. And you and I should be testimonies of that. Now we don't also, we don't fight spiritual battles with physical weapons, as I'm saying. Wednesday night we're going to talk about spiritual warfare. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but almighty in God for pulling down strongholds casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. When you apply the word of God to your heart and to your life, and if you apply the word of God even to you know, society, you won't be trying to suppress the truth. You won't be trying to push down in unrighteousness, as Romans 1 would say. You know that the word is true. So we don't fight spiritual battles with physical weapons. And we need to also remember that God's kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. Yes, there will be a millennial reign. And yes, Jesus will show us and we will participate in what it's like to rule and reign on this earth for a thousand years, which is going to be awesome. But that's not really truly what God's kingdom is. John 18.36, Jesus answered Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate had the question, and he said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. In other words, they would take up arms. You, you get the part about Peter and the carnal warfare and the carnal weapons and that we are not to fight our battles. We fight our battles on our knees as we sung this morning. The battle belongs to the Lord. Amen? So the next question, we have a question with an answer in Mark 14, 48 through 49. Jesus answered and said to them, he begins to speak to the situation. You know, he hadn't, even though in John he says, who am I and all that happened, but he's now going to have some dialogue. And he says, he speaks to the situation. He says, have you come out as against a robber? He hadn't committed any crime like robbery. Now that word robber, King James says he's a thief. The NIV says, am I leading a rebellion? In other words, somebody who would lead a rebellion. Am I some dangerous revolutionary? Well, in their mind that he was. He says, but why are you coming with swords and clubs to take me? Now here they were outside the city. It's three o'clock in the morning, late at night. They came to arrest him. Why did they wait? Why did they wait to do that? Because they feared the people's reaction to Jesus' arrest. If they had been arrested in public in the city of Jerusalem in broad daylight, they would have had a major riot on their hands. 
They feared the people's reaction, and they knew all of this, but his question was to highlight their evil intent. He's highlighting their evil intent and the fact that they had no legitimate grounds to arrest him, none whatsoever. He says, I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. You know, in other words, if I was such a threat to you then, why am I not already in jail? But the scriptures must be fulfilled. So he answers the question. He has a question for them, but he has an answer for everyone to say. Everything is happening according to God's plan. And you and I need to keep that in mind. You need to keep that in mind when you see the craziness that's going on in our world. When you see the latest headlines. You need to keep in mind that everything happens according to God's plan. And all things work for good for those of you who love him and know him. And if you're not known by him, then you're suffering the, the, you know, the way the world is. You're suffering in this fallen world. And you're going to try and figure it out. And if you are alive during the Great Tribulation, you won't even be able to get your answers. It's going to be very difficult. Jesus is going to lay his life down under his timing, and he's in charge. Isaiah 53, 12, he says, Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. This was God's plan, God's purpose, God's doing. Zechariah 13.7, it says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. So all this is to fulfill the scriptures, these, these particular scriptures indeed. Warren Wiersbe writes this, he said, The fact that Judas brought such a large group of armed men is evidence that neither he nor the religious leaders really understood Jesus. They thought that Jesus would try to escape or that his followers would put up a fight or that perhaps he might do a miracle. But our Lord's words here in Mark 14, 49 were proof that he was in control for they could have arrested him many times earlier except that his hour had not yet come. And then we come to the last part of our message today. It says, then they all forsook him, verses 50 through 52. It says, for they all forsook him and fled. You remember back in verse 27, uh, Mark 14, 27, Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. From what we just read from Zechariah. They all forsook him. Now to forsake means to wrongfully desert someone. It, it means to, you know, you, you, you shouldn't be leaving. This is not the time for you to leave. And it says that they all... Now, Jesus had predicted that they would scatter once they realized that he wasn't going to fight back. But Jesus, remember earlier, if just uh, you know, a short while ago, he told them, he says, you know, in the garden, he instructed them to stand, watch, and pray. It's obvious that they were unprepared. You know, had they stood watch, had they prayed with the Lord instead of falling asleep so many times... They might have been a little bit better prepared to deal with what was coming. 
Now, they may have had to scatter for the fear of being arrested, but it may have been a different situation. They may not have had to scatter as though the world was now turned upside down. They may not have had to run and hide for fear of their lives. They may have had confidence that, yes, they would be separated from the Lord, but maybe they would have had confidence had they prayed and stayed to do what the Lord had told them to do. They would have had a better understanding about what they were about to endure and about what the Lord was going to go through. And that, that forces a question on each of us. How do you plan for times of temptation? How do you plan for times of persecution? How do you plan your life when a loved one gets sick, when a loved one is on, in hospice? Are you ready to deal with that? You know, if you live long enough, you're going you're gonna to endure or your loved ones are going to endure some terrible pain in this world. You're going to watch people grow old and you're going to watch them die, unfortunately. How are you prepared to deal with that? But more importantly, how are you prepared to deal with the temptation that comes? I mean, are you just walking through life half asleep? You know, I'm saying this to myself because Jesus is like, look, you guys couldn't even watch and pray for one hour. How are we preparing? It says they fled, a fugo or fuego, they ran away. John 16, 32. Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come that you will be scattered each to his own and will leave me alone. But notice what Jesus says, and yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. And see, that's what we have. You know, you may think you're alone in all your problems. You may think you're alone in life and the situation that's upon you or has been upon you or will come upon you. But the Father is with you. Because of Jesus' death, he has made you friends with God. You are a friend of the Father. And you have un fettered access, unrestrained access to his throne of grace because of his great work. Here in verse 51, we have a very interesting, it's only recorded in Mark. It says, a certain young man followed him, having linen clothing thrown around his naked body. This is an interesting passage. Um, one writer, David Guzik, says, Jesus was forsaken even by this young follower who in the confusion had to flee naked. Now since the earliest days of the church, commentators have supposed that this young man was Mark himself. It was his humble way of saying, hey, I was there. You know, maybe he's, he's using his privilege in a sense as an author to make mention of this young man. It says he had linen thrown around his naked body. Many people suppose, this is again from David Guzik, this is kind of the story behind it. Many people suppose that the upper room where Jesus held the Last Supper just a few hours earlier was as a home owned by Mark's family. Acts 12.12 says that the disciples used to meet in the home of Mark's mother. It may be that the arresting army led by Judas first came to that home, Mark's home, because that's where Judas last left Jesus. You know, the last supper when Judas went out. It says when Judas and the group came and found them gone, it would have been easy for Judas to suppose that they were in Gethsemane because Jesus was accustomed to going there. And when Judas and the group started out for Gethsemane, we can imagine that young Mark, hardly dressed in a simple linen cloth, was sent out to beat Judas and his gang to Gethsemane so he could warn Jesus. That's, that's, a, that's a theory of why he mentions this. And it says, and the young men laid hold of him. You know, these Roman soldiers, they were going to grab him. And of course, he, he just had his, uh, his 
his uh, nightgown on, and he ran and left his clothes there and fled naked. That's what happened. Now Mark never again mentions Judas. After his betrayal, the traitor scurried into the darkness along with the faithful eleven. Never to be seen again in this narrative, we know from Matthew's gospel that he felt great remorse, and shortly thereafter, he hanged himself. Do not be fooled, however. Remorse is a far cry from repentance. It's an important thing for us to remember. Judas died in his sin, refusing to humble himself. He refused to confess his sin openly and seek Jesus' forgiveness, and then to live humbly and contritely in that merciful acceptance. He served evil and was eventually consumed by evil. As we conclude, a, a few maybe applications that could be helpful for us, a few more principles that uh, I have borrowed from Chuck Swindoll. I think he gave a good uh, analysis of this passage. And one of the first things he said, if you're taking notes, is his first association with godliness is no guarantee that we will become godly. Just because you dress up in a nice Hawaiian shirt and preach the Word of God or come to Calvary Chapel or any local church and go to all the events and all the things, just because you do that does not guarantee that you will become godly. You have to have a heart change. It's what only God can see that can make the difference. Joining a healthy church and cultivating relationships with spiritually mature people should be each of our priority, definitely. We need healthy influences. That's why it's not good to pull away and pull out of fellowship. We need the influence of one another. However, associating with mature believers will not nourish the soul any more than merely sitting at a table in a restaurant will nourish the body. To grow wise and to develop spiritually, writes Swindoll, we must personally take in what Jesus has offered. Faith in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins. Belief that He is the Son of God and that He died for your sins and that they were sufficient to pay the price that you should have been given, the penalty. We must submit to the truth to receive through His Word. Otherwise, we deceive ourselves and become our own worst enemy. You saw how Judas had talked himself in. He's like, I'm going to kiss, the, you know, I'm going to kiss this Jesus, I'm going to kiss this rabbi, and then just take him away safely. As though he was in charge. He had talked himself into thinking he was doing the right thing. Another point is moral corruption. And this is really important for us because, again... We have the ability through, through these devices to live a very private, sinful life. Moral corruption in secret is deadlier than visible moral corruption. There is no cancer deadlier than the one that goes undetected. Remember, none of the people, none of the disciples knew that it was Judas. The same is true of sin. Keeping our sinful nature carefully concealed keeps us from applying the remedy Jesus provided through the gift of salvation. One of his disciples later wrote, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. But failure to confess our sins. You know, what, we're, what I'm saying is, you and I need to live a life of repentance. 
And if you examine your heart before the Lord, you will, you will surely find areas. You know, you may not have some gross sin that's dominating your life at this time, but you, you can certainly find some areas if you're willing to be honest before the Lord and repent and have him seek you. you know, see, he, uh, David wrote, you know, see if you find a sinful way in me. You know, look, examine my heart. And that should be a lifestyle for us. But failure to confess our sins and receive forgiveness forces us, forces us to cope with the deadly effects of sin in ways that are sure to cause more damage later. In the case of Judas, he committed suicide. Another thing to keep in mind is that Satan and his demons are looking for any opportunity to work against the Lord. Again, we're going to talk about spiritual warfare this week. Uh, a scripture teaches us that person who bears unresolved sin, in other words, you are making sin a part of your life and you're trying to cover it up. And you're, you know, it's not like you're repenting or you're struggling with some things, but you are just kind of trying to hide and, and cover it up. Scripture teaches that the person who bears unresolved sin is an ideal vessel by which the devil can attack the people and the plans of God. At first, the person appears to be immune, but when Satan has done all the damage he can do, he leaves the vessel to be consumed by the sin that is carried. He always seeks to destroy. He's a destroyer. And then last, no sorrow can compare to the remorse of those who discover too late that they have misunderstood Jesus and spurned his love. Satan's primary tool is deception, which he uses to twist unresolved sin and selfish motivation to serve his purposes. Once the enemy is finished using someone, he cruelly unmasks the truth to reveal consequences of the person's foolish choices. And the flood of shame, humiliation, regret, self-condemnation, and hopelessness can be overwhelming. And that's what we see in the life of Judas. But Jesus, on the other hand, says this. And he continues to say it this day. He says, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Amen. John 8, 31 and 32. There is always hope for repentance and restoration through Jesus Christ who has conquered the devil and offers victory to those who will take shelter in him. Will you take shelter in the Lord today once again and trust in him? Father, we thank you for our time today. We thank you, Lord, that you have protected us, Lord, and we pray for your protection as we continue as we head home. Lord, uh, we just pray that you would move these storms and that we would travel safely through these storms, knowing that you have heard us, Lord. You've heard our prayers and you know our desires. We desire to serve you. So thank you, Lord, for all that you're doing here in this house. Thank you for today and all the promises that you give us. Go before us. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.